You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an economist and technologist who serves as the executive director of the Technology and Policy Research Initiative at Boston University. He was previously a successful innovator and CEO of a software company and has been widely cited in the press as well as by the U.S. White House and Supreme Court, the European Parliament, and the Federal Trade Commission. His latest book is titled The New Goliaths, How Corporations Use Software to Dominate Industries, Kill Innovation, and Undermine Regulation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, James Besson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Right. So I studied economics in, in college and became very interested in the economics of technology. I come from, my dad was a scientist um, and ended up starting a, a software company. I, I wrote one of the first desktop publishing products and became a successful entrepreneur, sold the company. Uh, but then I wanted to get back into academics in part because my whole experience as an entrepreneur uh, raised all sorts of questions about things that seem very different in real business life than from what I'd learned in the classroom. Um, so I, I re-entered academia in part uh, due to with the help of some uh, friends who'd become very successful. Um, we began writing some papers. I joined some colleagues at BU, Boston University, uh, looking into software patents, and that ultimately led to the establishment of our research organization, the Technology and Policy Research Initiative. So what we focus on are the major impacts of technology on society, things like effects on on workers, on you know, will automation take all our jobs, things about how to best provide incentives for innovation, things about industrial dynamism. Uh, so that's that's what we're doing. This book comes out of, of research, uh, much of it done at our center, uh, although we draw widely on other people's research. Okay, so like you said, your latest book is titled The New Goliaths, How Corporations Use Software to Dominate Industries, Kill Innovation, and Undermine Regulation. So I'd like to begin by sort of asking you to tell tell us about a bit about how this book came about and your journey in researching and writing it. Sure. Yeah. So about five years ago, a number of people began noticing that industry concentration, meaning the the share of the top firms in each industry, uh, had been growing for some time. The top four firms, you know, have a market share. It went up over the last thirty years or so. Um, and that is possibly troubling. Um, it might be a sign that those companies are just more successful or doing a better job, but it might also be some, uh, you know, an indicator of something more troubling that competition has declined in a, in a certain way. Uh, and so that started a lot of people thinking. One of the things that uh, I realized and wanted to think about and explore was uh, we're seeing a huge investments in software by many of these large companies. Uh, we know that those investments pay off in terms of increasing 
revenues for those companies, increasing their productivity. Could part of the rise in market share be explained by software? So I did an initial paper and found, lo and behold, yes, that seemed to be true. It also seemed to be a causal relationship uh, by a different di number of different methods of estimation. Um, and it largely accounted for the increase. So the software seemed to be very much involved in what was going on. Uh, but that raised the question of, well, what's, you know, why should that be? Why isn't the uh, software widely available? In fact, when we talk about, when people talked about the new economy, you know, it was all about having cheap software and cheap computers so that, you know, any mom and pop store could become a, you know, access the technology of all the top retailers and uh, do things, you know, do very advanced things and it would sort of democratize innovation. Here, it seems to be having a reverse effect. So it led us to, uh, and, and it just down a number of alleys. We're still pursuing some of these questions. Um, one of them was to look at uh, disruption. Um, you know, how likely is it that a firm that is in the top four in its industry will be in the top four next year or five years from now? Uh, it turns out when we started looking at that, um, pretty much across the board, the rate of disruption has declined dramatically uh, since about 2000. Um, so again, and again, we found a correlation, at least in this case, with software. Uh, the flip side of that is we, we, we found evidence and other people found evidence that innovative firms are growing more slowly. It's not that firms aren't enter entering, you know, we're still, startups are still being created, but a, an innovative startup is just not going to grow as fast as it did 20 years ago by a substantial amount. Um, so th it was this line of thinking that, you know, there's clearly something going on about market position. We th I then took that and related it in some other studies uh, to things like uh, wage inequality. Uh, there are big differences in pay now, and, and many of those differences are driven by the kind of technologies that firms have rather than the individual skills of the worker. Uh, I related it to things like government regulation. When the when industry and, and firms are using these large, complex software systems, uh, it often becomes difficult for government regulators to do their jobs. So I can maybe I'll pause there a sec, but I can go on and explain uh, what it is about software and, and and what it is these companies are doing that's creating these effects. Yeah, and that was sort of going to be my my next question for you. So in the description, you write that, quote, historically, competition has powered progress under capitalism. Companies with productive new products rise to the top, but sooner or later, competitors come along with better innovations and disrupt the threat of monopoly. Dominant firms like Walmart, Amazon, and Google argue that this process of creative destruction prevents them from becoming too powerful or entrenched. But the threat of competition has sharply decreased over the past 20 years, and today's corporate giants have come to power by using proprietary information technologies to create a tilted playing field. So can you tell us a bit about what's changed over the past 20 years or so that makes dom the dominant firms of today more resistant to disruption than the dominant firms of previous decades? Right, right. So yeah, so the, we started by looking at different industries, you know, different case studies, and there, there seemed to be a common thread. What what they, you know, the question was, what are they doing with this software that, that's giving them this sort of more permanent advantage? <clears throat> and the answer was, the common thread is they're managing complexity. So 
a, a, st- a store like Walmart can handle many more items in its, you know, Walmart super center than a typical department store, or typical grocery store. Um, automobiles or airplanes have many, many more features because they're based on software. Advertisers target individuals. Banks, credit card companies, home, you know, home equity lines, all this stuff. They can tailor the credit offerings to individuals based on extensive data so that they're offering, you know, many more products to people. Uh, and and uh, they're able to then target the marketing so that they're reaching the people who are going to be most susceptible for, to to uh, take credit out on certain terms. Um, and, and you see this across industry, health insurance. Uh, even waste management is an industry where they're building large, large systems to uh, improve service. So all of these things are good things. And, it, you know, what it is, is by offering many varieties, by offering many more features and products, uh, by changing features more rapidly, uh, firms are better able to meet customers' individual needs, especially as those individual needs change rapidly. So that that's the good news. The bad news is these systems are very complex. It's they're not just software. It's a combination of software and data and artificial intelligence in some cases and hardware and and really different types of organizations. Uh, so you know, a store like Walmart is a very different type of organization than uh, Sears was or Kmart. Um, those are things that are very difficult to imitate. And so what it does, it gives these these firms that have mastered these platforms, developed these platforms, uh, a real staying power, a, a moat against uh, rivals or competition. And and that's sort of the key thing that's that's changed, allowing them to dominate their markets, allowing them to postpone disruption, allowing them to slow down uh, innovative rivals. Okay. Um, so next I wanted to, to ask about regulation and political influences. So you talk in the book about how certain developments have allowed dominant firms to evade regulation. So we've all heard about how large corporations across virtually every sector spend huge amounts of money on political lobbying and have armies of lawyers and accountants that enable right. them to do things like paying corporate taxes. But none of this seems particularly new. So can you tell us a bit about the mechanisms that allow these new dominant yeah. firms to evade regulation? Yeah, yeah. And it's not, I mean, I've written about the lobbying in my last book um, and, and, you know, political activity. Uh, as firms become larger, uh, they tend to uh, invest much more in lobbying. So that, that that's one factor. Um, so you think about the big tech firms, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, they, many of them spent very little on lobbying and, and on uh, those sorts of activities. Uh, now they're very big spenders, but that's, that's also a very crowded field. I think you're right. It hasn't changed overall that much. It's been going on a long time. Um, doesn't mean it's, it's, uh, it's good, but, um, what's different and, and what I write about in this book is when, when products are based on complex software systems. So that, you know, there's the message is, these big firms have all these incentives to develop these complex software systems. Uh, it gives them advantages. But one advantage it gives them is it often may allow them to evade government regulation. So 
one of the cases I write about is the diesel admission scandal. You know, an automobile now has hundreds of thousands of lines of code, just, a, you know, an enormous amount of software, uh, which controls every feature of the car, uh, not only the, you know, the electronics, but the transmission, the, you know, the ignition timing, all of those things are very subtly controlled by, by computers now and software. Um, we know that uh, about a dozen diesel manufacturers were able to tweak that code uh, in a way to defeat the emissions tests that the EPA and other regulators put the cars through. So there's, the, you know, there's concern, particularly about diesel cars. Diesel cars uh, have some advantages, but uh, in, um, in, in terms of, you know, their use of carbon gas, uh, yeah, carbon uh, gases, but they also generate nitrous oxides, which are pretty bad pollutants. Um, so these, uh, uh, there was a project of some graduate students at West Virginia University, um, where they were testing, uh, a, a Volkswagen, a Volkswagen, diesel Volkswagen that was supposed to get, uh, you know, very good, very low emissions and good mileage. And they discovered it was emitting 20 times as much, uh, as was legally allowed and what was claimed. Um, the, the, you know, the, so there was this whole investigation about what's going on. You know, it turns out basically they, they tweaked Volkswagen engineers tweaked the code, a relatively, you know, needle in a haystack in the, of this huge amount of code. Uh, so that when the car started, it, it assumed that it was in uh, emissions testing. And, and so it kept the emissions low, but that also meant that the, the power of the car was low. Um, when the, Computers detected that the car had been on the open road for a while, that it was, the wheels had turned a number of times. You know, they, they had an algorithm for figuring out when they're in an EPA test and when they're not. Once they figured out they're on the open road, they, you know, opened up the emissions gate, flooding the air with pollutants and, um, uh, got much better performance. So people liked the car thinking it was a, you know, a clean diesel car when in fact it wasn't, there was, there was a fraud and that, you know, that, that was a huge scandal, very costly to uh, Volkswagen and many other company, diesel companies. Uh, that's not the, that's not even the worst one, but I mean, you, you see what goes on there is that it was very hard, almost impossible for regulators to, to tell what was going on, to detect this sort of uh, evasion. Uh, it had been going on for 10 years or so. The subprime mortgage collapse is perhaps an even bigger and more uh, more significant uh, result. But I mean, just very briefly, uh, this was about these mortgage instruments that were, you know, they they built bonds based on mortgages, and then they built financial instruments based on those bonds, and they mixed uh, very low quality mortgages with others in such a way that they claimed. These were going to be low risk that, to, you know, to the extent that there were some risky mortgages, they were supposedly balanced out. Uh, but all of this was very obscure. It could only have been done in software. At the same time, they relied on ratings agencies to declare these financial instruments as being safe. But the financial ratings agencies uh, used software models. And pretty soon, uh, Wall Street figured out how to game those systems uh, so that they could 
get really stinker mortgages rated very highly. Uh, and the banks themselves used software models to take these assets that they had uh, and incorporate them in an overall risk assessment that they gave to the Federal Reserve, the banking regulators. And this wasn't, of course, just in this country. This was other countries as well. Well, it turned out it was a house of cards. There was these uh, huge, huge investments. The, the Federal Reserve had no clue as to the magnitude of how much was at risk. In fact, Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, went before Congress and gave them a figure, and it turned out the real number was at least I don't know, 20 or 30 times as much uh, was, was, was lost. Um, and it's again, it's because these complex software systems uh, enable uh, firms to obscure the, what's really going on. Okay. Um, so next I wanted to ask about the productivity gap. So you start a, an early chapter in the book by telling the story of a speech recognition startup in the 90s called Nuance, which grew rapidly for a few years and then stagnated right around the time that big tech companies started to adopt um, speech recognition software into their products. So can you tell us a bit more about this phenomenon you refer to as the productivity gap? Yeah, so Nuance's technology didn't stagnate. Well, maybe in a sense it did. So speech recognition relies on training. You know, it's one of these machine learning type applications that re relies on training. So Nuance, Nuance became the undisputed leader in the, in the technology. They had a dictation system. Um, and uh, Apple was their customer. Google was their customer. You know, everybody... <laughs> Everybody was their customer. It was one of the best-selling apps in the in the Apple App Store, uh, and it did a good job at doing dictation. Problem is, dictation is a sort of narrow application, and uh, speech, of course, is being used today much more broadly to do things. You know, you think of the Amazon Alexa or the you know Google Assistant the, or Siri, uh, where you can make all sorts of requests to the computer to change music, to 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 do whatever, to do to do lots of things, and th these requests are much much broader than the kind of a language that gets used in dictation, and the you know the big companies um, have access to all of these other activities. So you know it, it's something like half of all Google searches are done. Uh, through sound, through voice, um, Google gets all that data, all that information, so it can improve its uh, speech recognition systems uh, to handle a much wider array of applications and, and uses of speech than Nuance. And so basically the people who were Nuance's customers became their rivals. Um, and Nuance has since been bought by Microsoft, uh, so it's not a not necessarily a sad ending, but uh, it was a case, you know, where you see it, it's it's no longer the, the you know the typical story that you you had in the '80s, for instance, when the scene was very much one where uh, you know a startup would come along and it would grow big and it would displace the uh, the incumbent. You know, Microsoft could grow and and basically replace IBM. Um, so it's it's a you know be and it's, it has to do it's the same thing that. The, you know, Google and Amazon and Apple have just these much more complex sets of applications that they can tie voice recognition into. And that becomes, uh, 
difficult for uh, a very innovative startup to compete against. So its growth slowed, basically stalled out in 2013. Um, that's led to what, what people at the OECD have noticed and, and called the productivity gap, that you've got these uh, these large firms who have the best technology and are dominating the marketplaces and uh, their uh, their revenue per employee is much greater than the rest of the firms in the industry. Now, typically, that that's not the case. Typically, technology is spread throughout the industry so that firms, both large and small, can compete with similar productivity. Uh, it's a different story now. Okay, so I mean, from from sort of listening to your your explanation, it it seems to me like part of this sounds sounds sort of like a network effect, um, you know, where because Google has so many you know millions, if not billions, of users, um, that they they can collect all this data and use that to to more efficiently you know tailor their products, improve their services, um, you know, provide a better customer experience, all all those sorts of things. Um, but insofar yeah, so as it's, that's, it's definitely a positive thing from the point of view of the consumer, the yeah. problem is it seems to be a negative thing from the point of view of long run productivity growth, of long run innovation. So if we're slowing down the innovators like nuance. Uh, we, you know, we may not have a problem today, but we may have one in 10 years. We have this issue where productivity has growth has slowed down and People at the census have tied this, in fact, to slower growth of startups. Um, so th these things are related. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, sort of a, yes, we're, we're serving the consumers better today, but we're creating a situation where productivity growth is slower. And that's going to mean less for everyone in the long run. Okay, but then how is this sort of say different from the the MySpace and, and Facebook example? You know, MySpace had pretty much everyone was using MySpace. You know, it had hundreds of millions of users and all this data. And then Facebook comes along with a better product offering. Um, you know, and and sort of takes over and, and dominates again. So, I mean, these these sorts of disruptions we we used to see them all the time, even with you know massive corporations. They would have all these users, they would have all this data, but we we still right. wouldn't wouldn't expect them to to just dominate for decades and decades without disruption. Right, right. Yeah, so, I mean, the the leaders of today were, in fact, disruptors of their time. You know, Walmart came along in the 90s and disrupted Sears and Kmart. Uh, now, Sears was, a, you know, a company that invested a lot in technology. They were IBM's biggest customer at one point. Um, they pioneered e-commerce and the, the Prodigy system, um, but they didn't have this sort of complex integrated system uh, that Walmart had, and they really couldn't. Uh, Sears was a very different sort of organization, a very dyed-in-the-wool you know, sort of organization where people had their fixed roles and jobs, and you, you couldn't do what Walmart did, which was to really change the roles of, of people throughout the system. You know, the Walmart system, basically store managers and even suppliers get a complete uh, look on onto what is selling at each store at each cash register uh, so they can they can understand what the changes are in in what's selling and what which merchandise is hot and which is not and adjust very quickly and, and accordingly uh, Sears you know had a system where the traditional retail system where you would have buyers who would decide these things and it was a, a very slow cycle to get changes and 
um, you know, the, the information they had at their fingertips was not nearly so good. And they, they didn't have the logistics to get changes in merchandise to the store very quickly. Um, so it's, it's this thing where we had disruption in the past, but now that, that, uh, these systems are in place, they're very difficult to disrupt. So Facebook's not going to be easy to disrupt. Uh, Walmart's not easy to disrupt. They've been around now for, you know, 20, 30 years. They, you know, we're going on, uh, where they've been dominant. Um, it, it, that's not to say it won't, doesn't happen at all. It does. Uh, disruption still happens, but it's just happening at a much slower pace. So next I wanted to ask about your solution to some of the problems that we discussed, which is to encourage or compel these companies to share their technology, data, and knowledge. So can you tell us a bit more about what specifically you would urge legislators or policymakers at the state or federal level to do, why that might be necessary, and why you think this is the best solution? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the first off, you know, I, I think some people react and say, well, we got to break up these big companies. Um you don't want to break up these systems. I mean, there, there, yes, there are certain divisions of some companies that could be spun off. I, I'm not sure that's necessarily an effective move, but th- that's not going to solve this problem. To, you, you want to maintain the benefits of these large systems. You know, like, like I started out saying, these are delivering, you know, better customer experience, best, better products to people. They're, they're meeting consumer needs better. But what you need to do is increase access so that more rival companies, smaller companies, can access uh, this technology. And so we're, we're first off, we're seeing some examples of that where companies are doing it on their own. And one of the companies I think is leading this is the, the much reviled Amazon. Uh, so, you know, Amazon developed a world-class IT capabilities because it needed to in order to manage its website and support its website, you know, managing trillions of transactions and God knows how fast. Um, they, they realized that this was a, a key competitive advantage, but in the mid 2000s, they decided to spin this off and make it available through an API for a fee, uh, to any, anyone who wanted it. Uh, so they created the Amazon web services, which we know generally is the cloud. And they, they thus created the cloud industry. Now that's been a tremendous way that all sorts of companies, both large and small, can access, uh, you know, top-notch technology. It, they they charge a fee for it. Yes, it's been hugely profitable for Amazon. Um, but it's the kind of thing that, uh, by spreading access to the technology, um, you're erasing some of those differences. Amazon also makes available some of their logistics capabilities to to small merchants, so you can get you know a mom and pop seller who can, you know, get overnight, you know, prime delivery uh, and really compete effectively with Walmart, uh, even though Walmart has this, you know, amazing logistics system. Well, some companies are going to do that, but I think government probably also can play a role in encouraging companies to do it more. Um, We've seen government play that kind of role in the past. Uh, Government encouraged uh, AT&T or Bell Labs to uh, license its semiconductor patents. Uh, government encouraged IBM to sell its hardware separately from its software. So that, that allowed independent software companies to emerge and started, essentially was the 
creation point of the the modern software industry. Um, but we can we can look at other cases where firms are much more reluctant to do these things, and government could play a role in encouraging. So in the book, I talk about one example, which is fintech. Uh, you know, so you've got these big banks that have all of this information on your transactions, everything you buy on your credit card, what goes through your banking statement, uh, you know, just a huge amount of data. And they're using it very effectively to pitch you home equity lines or, you know, different credit cards. Um, but it's proprietary and, and no one else can access that data. And in fact, you can't necessarily easily get a download of your own data uh, to give to somebody else. Um, fintech companies come along and have other ideas about things you could do with your data. For one thing, you could get a, a you know a picture of all your different investments at different banks and financial institutions, but only if those banks and financial institutions let you have your own data. Um, so there's a real role where uh, government can play a you know can encourage firms or require them to make the the data available under a standard format. This has been done in some European and some East Asian company uh, countries. Um, and that may then spur uh, a tremendous amount of innovation in fintech. What we're seeing is that banks are opening up slowly on a piecemeal basis. It's not a uniform format, format so it's it's it, they're dragging their feet essentially. Um, fact is, the 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 Dodd Frank Act back more than ten years ago um, included requirements that banks do this. It's just that the you know the regulatory process perhaps because of all that lobbying that goes on has, you know, really hasn't done the task it's supposed to do. Okay. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, James. Thank you everyone for listening to the economics review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.